Exodus 27, starting in verse 1. You shall make the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits. And you shall make horns on it, four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it and you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes and shovels and basins and forks and fire pans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall also make for it a grating, a network of bronze, and on that net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. And you shall set it under the ledge of the altar so that the net extends halfway down the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. And the poles shall be put through the rings so that the poles are on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. You shall make it hollow with boards, as it is shown you on the mountain, so it shall be made. Leviticus chapter 6 verse 12. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning, and he shall arrange the burnt offering on it, and shall burn on it the fat of the peace offering. Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. This is God's word. Father God, we, we come before your throne in confidence of your forgiveness, in confidence of your provision, Father, we know that you have restored those of us who love you to friendship with you. Those of us uh, who have not, you call back to yourself. And Father, you do all of that through Jesus, your Son, whom you have laid on the altar of your justice. You have rested the punishment for our sin, our rebellion on him. We don't have to earn your favor. You have given it freely. At great cost to yourself. We love you. We praise you. It is in Jesus' name that we pray this morning. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. My name is Jacob. I serve here at Redeemer. Occasionally get to preach. And if you're new, we're in the middle of a sermon series on the Old Testament book of Exodus. It's the story of God's rescuing of his people from slavery In a country called Egypt, he is taking them to a place called Canaan, the promised land. And as he is describing to them how they ought to worship worship him, he gives them instructions to build a a tabernacle, sort of mobile temple. And as he gives these people instructions, he doesn't do anything accidentally. There isn't a piece that's just for show. But he is instead telling them something about himself. First, he is telling them that he lives among his people. He doesn't remain on a mountain away from them like some sort of pagan god, like the Greek gods lived on Olympus. No, he comes down and he he dwells in the midst of his people. But each aspect of the tabernacle communicates something particular about what it means for God to dwell among his people. Now, up to this point, we've looked at various bits of the furniture within the interior of the tabernacle. But today we move to the outer court of the tabernacle, still within the tabernacle, but but on the exterior, to look at the bronze altar. And I think we've got a, a graphic for that. But this altar was made of acacia wood. It's often associated with the biblical tree of life in the Garden of Eden. It is covered with bronze. This is a less pure metal than one might find in the furnishings and the interior of the tabernacle, where everything was was gold. 
But it's also better suited for the pressures that, that the heat of fire will cause it to endure. As you see, it, it's not quite a cube. It's about four and a half feet tall, and at its corners are horns. It has bronze utensils accompanying in order to clean it, to prepare it, to, um, to cook the sacrifices upon it. But it's also built with portability in mind. There are poles that can be used to, to transplant the bronze altar. Now the other furnishings that we've talked about within the tabernacle up to this point, the lampstand, the Ark of the Covenant, the table for bread, those furnishings are only ever seen by a few people within all of Israel. A few priests will, will see those items. But for the average Israelite, this is his focus point for his religion. When he thinks about his relationship with God, when he thinks about his requests for provision from God, when he thinks about his friendship with God, when he thinks about his sin toward God, his mind and his imagination will always come back to this place, to this altar. It is the center of his religious life. And as he comes to the altar, he may come to the altar for a variety of reasons. The book of Leviticus starts out with a list of, of five major sacrifices that are, that are offered up before God. And these sacrifices demonstrate different things, but all of them at some level show us that God is just. That it is He who provides for His people. It is He who punishes sin. It's He who restores friendship. The first thing that a man might offer as he comes before God is a burnt offering. Maybe a major feast day or, or, or he may be um, penitent for some sin or, or petitioning God for provision in some area of his life. But what he would do is he would bring an animal to the altar. The animal would be slaughtered and the totality of the animal would be burnt up. Nothing would be left. What this would communicate to this Israelite is that God has consecrated all to Himself, that He possesses all, and He will make all holy. And to do that, He will remove unholiness, unrighteousness. He will destroy sin. And for this, this offer, this Israelite, He has destroyed this man's sin. Or this woman's sin. Accompanying the bird's offering... A person might bring a grain offering. Part of the grain offering would be burnt up. The rest would be used to, to feed the priests. But this grain offering would often um, accompany a petition for provision. Maybe the crops were not good this year. Or maybe there is an enemy army approaching and the people of Israel, they need God to provide for them, to rescue them. So they bring him a grain offering. What they are saying is, all that we own is God's. All of the fruit of our labor, the work of our hands, even that is God's. So when we request from God, we are requesting what He already owns and giving back to Him that which He possesses. Additionally, uh, an Israelite may offer a peace offering. This would be a sign of his friendship with God. Perhaps God had, in fact, provided the harvest that, uh, that a person needed. 
Maybe he had rescued the people of Israel. And as an act of worship, a person would bring to the altar his best lamb. He would slaughter it in the presence of, his piece, uh, of the priest. And the fat, the best part of the animal, would be offered up to God. It would be burned up in the altar, and its aroma, the Bible says, would be pleasing to the Lord. The priest and the offerer would then share this meal, as it were, with God. Of course, God having the best portion, that's his portion. But there would be friendship in that place between God, his mediator, his representative on earth, the priest, and the offerer. Now, God gave in the Old Testament quite a few laws to his people, and it's inevitable that someone would break the law intentionally or unintentionally, either due to moral dilemma, ignorance, mistake, or just outright rebellion. So if somebody broke, or, or even the whole nation broke the law this way, they could offer a sin offering. The animal's blood would be spread on the horns of the altar, the fat would be burned up, unedible portions would be discarded in an ash heap. And then the sins, the debt that a person owed to God would be forgiven. It would be annulled. There would be no more sin debt for that particular act. So, for instance, our hypothetical Israelite, perhaps he has not observed the Sabbath. He realizes his sin. He brings a sin offering. He doesn't owe God anymore. But maybe his conscience is impinged still. He feels guilty. Maybe this isn't the first time. This is a a habit for him, and his heart is being broken because he's disrespected God. He's ignored him. He has not taken the time to fellowship with God. So he could offer a guilt offering. He would be forgiven by God. His shame would be covered up. His hurting conscience, at least temporarily, until he realized a new way that his soul was corrupt, would be assuaged. He could be confident that not only had God destroyed his sin, not only had he dealt with an individual's sin, not only had he restored friendship between him and God, but he had truly dealt with and forgiven a systematic category of sin. Now, there there tend to be two ways that we respond to the idea that God might forgive our sin. One more common among those of you like me have a religious upbringing, you grew up in church, You might say something like, I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. Is that any of you? Well, the guilt offering would be for you because it would remind you that God has forgiven you. And there's nothing left to say on the matter. That ultimately, God is the final arbiter of what is owed to him. And in the guilt offering, nothing is left done. That time you spent in college rebelling against everything your parents taught you? Forgiven. That season you neglected your wife and kids? Forgiven. That out-of-wedlock pregnancy? Forgiven. That abortion? Forgiven. Alternatively, some of you, though, you look at something like this and and you look down on these people. You think this is awfully barbaric. There's an awful lot lot of blood and maybe this seems like animal cruelty to you. Maybe you don't even believe in sin. 
And why would you need a sacrifice to make you right with God if sin doesn't even exist? But here's the deal. I I bet you believe in evil. It's really not too hard, given recent events. When a man walks into a Bible study and guns down nine people for no other reason than the color of their skin, it's really hard to contend that there is no such thing as evil. When people commit arson against churches, it's hard to argue that there is not evil in this world. And I bet you've had evil committed against you. I bet people have done to you things that in that moment, what you wanted more than anything else was fairness and justice. Well, that's what's happening in these sacrifices. When we see evil happen, we want that justice. God has made a way for that to occur. Someone is sinned against another person, so they pay legal restitution. They suffer legal consequences. There's a civil law, even in Israel, that has to be fulfilled. But when they cheat, when they hurt, when they kill or abuse a person who is made in the image of God, when they desecrate His image in this world, they are committing evil against God. So they must pay restitution back to Him. And if you don't believe in sin... You don't like hearing about God's justice, His wrath. It's uncomfortable for us to talk about it. It's a little bit scary when we, we talk about sacrifices and, and places like hell. And, and if that's you, maybe you're mad that I'm, I'm talking about God's justice. Maybe you're mad that we would mention hell. You think I'm some sort of fire and brimstone kind of guy. I'm really not. This is maybe as awkward for me as it is for you. You have to be just a little bit weird to like to talk about God's wrath and justice. And it would be easier to tell you nice things about yourself. But but here's the deal. If we want justice for injuries against us, it follows that God would want justice for injuries against him. If we get to be the plaintiff when others hurt us, God gets to be the plaintiff when we hurt him. If we beg for justice when we've been hurt, when some crime has been committed against us, some sin has been committed against us, God as well gets to have justice when he's the hurting party. Now for the Israelites, this meant bringing another animal for the next sin. Slitting its throat, draining its blood, carving its carcass, Burning it up. More sin. More evil. More oppression. Do it again. Rinse. Repeat. Continue. For millennia. When did the people of Israel stop offering sacrifices in this system? When do all these bulls and goats and pigeons, when do they finally pay for the sin of the people against God? When do they finally satisfy His justice? Never. We read in Leviticus 6, 12 through 13, that God commanded the people of Israel to keep this altar burning. Always hot. Always ready to consume the cost of sin. The cost for guilt. To restore friendship. 
Nothing these people could ever bring. No animal that they had personally birthed, raised, maybe named. A great personal cost could ever cover up all that they had done or all that had been done to them. These sacrifices show us God's justice. But they cannot complete God's justice. Hebrews 10, verse 1 in the New Testament, if you want to turn there with me. For since the law is but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would not they have ceased to be offered since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Our sin is too great, and our, remedy, our, our ability to remedy it is too limited to ever possibly fully deal with the ramifications of sin at this altar. God's justice is too big for it to be satisfied. But, and this is important, maybe the most important word in the history of language, but that's not what God has in mind here. He isn't made happy by all this blood, by his creation being destroyed on account of us. But the sacrificial system is offered as a hope. It serves as a movie trailer. As our hypothetical Israelite brings his offerings to this place, he knows someday God will offer something better. There will be a day when a better lamb, a perfect lamb, will be offered up, that will be able to satisfy God's justice for all eternity. There will be no more bulls and sheep and pigeons walked across this altar. It will be done. And that lamb is Jesus. That he takes upon himself the justice that we deserve. That he restores the friendship that we should have had with God. And when he does this, that's called grace. He takes upon himself just as it should belong on our back. And he puts on us grace. He closes the altar when he dies on a cross. Justice isn't found there anymore. Hebrews continues in verse 10. And by what will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all? And every priest stands daily to service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ is offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering is perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus is the sacrifice offerer who offers up himself. He is our priest handling the sacrifice. We'll deal more with that as we press deeper into the series. But for today, the most important thing to know is that Jesus is our sacrifice. He's our our burnt offering who consumes our sin before God. So maybe this is you. Maybe you come into this place and you feel pressed down. There's a lot of baggage that you are carrying. 
You know very well what you have done. You know very well what has done or been done to you. And it was an amazing act of bravery to show your face in a church. Jesus has taken all of that baggage from you and he has destroyed it. Eliminated it. At the foot of his cross. And to replace it, he's become our grain offering, who's our provision and provider. He's offered us a meal. He's offered us sustenance. We'll take a meal here in a minute. We'll have a, a piece of bread and we'll drink a cup of juice. But this is a reminder that Jesus is our provision. And by being this meal, Jesus is also our, our peace offering. He restores fellowship and friendship with God. When we take communion, we aren't just eating a piece of bread. We aren't just drinking a piece of juice. We're saying that we are friends with God. That he has restored us to his fellowship. We aren't eating this meal alone in isolation. We are eating it as a people with our God. Like the priest with the offer and and God, who is having the, the fat burnt up as a pleasing aroma to him. Jesus has made us friends again. So we come into this place. We come laden with baggage. We come hungry spiritually. We come friendless spiritually. And God has, through Jesus, taken our baggage. He has fed us. He has sat down at the table with us. But we also come in here with great debt. A great debt of sin toward God. A debt we could never hope to repay. And Jesus clears that debt too. Instead of charging us more for his hospitality, he clears all of our debt. It's like he breaks out the checkbook. Writes something we could never fathom. Cashes down on our behalf. So we come in here. We come in here with baggage. We come hungry. We come friendless. We come in debt. Jesus is taking care of all of that. But maybe, maybe this is you. Maybe you come to this place and you still feel naked and exposed. Man, you know what you've done. There is shame. You know what's been done to you. You can't get past that, you feel like. One of the, one of the first things God did when the first couple, Adam and Eve, sinned was he took a, an animal in the garden and he sacrificed that animal. He took its skin and he clothed them. He covered up their shame and their nakedness. By being our guilt offering, Jesus is doing just that. He is clothing us in his righteousness. Giving us white robes to wear before him. He's brought us in. He's removed from us our, our, our sin, our brokenness. Fed us. Been our friend, cleared our debt, and now to top it all off, he gives us the best thing he has to offer us and wraps us up in it. Martin Luther would call this the great exchange. Jesus has taken the worst about us, all of our bad, 
And he has given us his best. Of course, we, we don't always recognize this reality, but it is true. And it's good news. It's amazing news. It's good news for those of you who despair because you know the ways you're broken. You know the ways things aren't right in your life and you can't fix them. It's good news for the person who has been pretending for way too long that everything is okay. That you are just fine the way you are. Naked and alone and hungry. You can stop pretending. You can let God take the justice that you deserve upon himself. To free you from that debt. To bring you in as a friend. To have a meal with you. To clothe you with righteousness. To give you back your dignity. And Redeemer, justice has to be carried out. It does. If it isn't carried out, God is not a good God. He's not a just God. Sin must be punished when, when people hurt you, when you hurt other people. That has to get taken care of. But it doesn't have to be carried by you. If you will let him, it can be carried by Jesus up the hill of Calvary. And put to death on his cross. You can let him be your sacrificial lamb. Who incinerates all of your sin like a burnt offering. Who becomes your provision like a grain offering. Who returns us to friendship with God like a peace offering. Who pays the debt of sin that we owe like a sin offering. And who finally cleanses our consciousness. Our consciences cleanses us of all of our guilt like a guilt offering. That's grace, Redeemer. Amazing grace in the face of justice. And we want that grace. We desire that grace. So let's put our, our hope in Jesus. Let's rest in the grace that he's offered us. Like a warm embrace from an old friend as he puts on a new coat. Let me pray for us. Father God, we love you. We praise you. I, I don't even know where to start thanking you. For me, it, it feels like I, I revisit my guilt often. Thank you for clothing me in your righteousness. Father, help us. Help us to enjoy that which you've already given us. That there isn't something we can add to this. That we can only enjoy it. And, and as a result, we turn to worship you. Help us rest in your grace. Help us rest in your freedom. We love you. We praise you as we sit down to this meal with you. We thank you for your friendship and provision. It's in Jesus' heavenly name that I pray this morning. Amen.